Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We're taking up Matthew 10 here. Jesus sends out the 12. He's going to take the whole chapter to do this. We'll start with verse 1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, who these 12 disciples were, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. It's not an easy question. There's several parallel accounts, and sometimes the naming conventions of the Jews created confusion because they had different names. But we'll look at that. We'll notice the background of this. The immediate context is the last few verses in Matthew 9 where Jesus said, Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And so after he says pray, then he says, I'm going to send you. And so this is the sending out the laborers into the harvest. Now these 12 disciples had authority over unclean spirits. Authority is exercising power legitimately, legitimate power. Power is a term that can mean using force or strength illegitimately as well as legitimately. But here this is legitimate authority. Jesus gave them legitimate authority and power to cast out demons. In fact, Luke chapter 9, 1, parallel Ver, uh, pa- passage there says summoning the twelve he gave them power and and authority over all the demons and power to heal diseases now the first question that comes to mind is an application question do christians today still have the authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal diseases and sickness well if you're john MacArthur or phil robinson or todd friel or justin peters you're going to say, oh, no, only the devil can do that. Only the devil can work miracles today. You might you might be working from the power of Beelzebul if you try to pray for somebody to heal the sick and all the other nonsense that they preach. Yes, you have the authority to do that. It, the, the gospel spreads much, much faster when people have, when, when disciples today following Jesus, when they exercise that kind of authority over unclean spirits. Now, I know that Jesus didn't mention everybody here. He only mentions the 12. So you can make a prima facie case that the authority was only given to 12 disciples, but it never limits that authority to the 12 disciples. So maybe secessionists need to wake up. Now, let's look at the synoptic parallels of this summoning of the 12. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. So you see there they went out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. They were to wear sandals, but not to put on an extra shirt. Then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with olive oil and healing them. So... The parallel, we're going to face most of the details here that Mark has right here in, in Matthew. Uh, Luke also has uh, parallel passages, too. They're pretty close. Now, notice that these are called, these 12 are called disciples here. They're actually called apostles for the first time in the, in the next verse that we're going to take, take up. Matthew calls them apostles. Apostles are sent ones. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 says, He also appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with them to send them out and preach. So apostles were sort of like capital A apostles. They were disciples, but they were special disciples. Some disciples refused to follow Jesus when the going got tough. There's a passage, I forgot exactly where it is, that says they stopped following him. The disciples stopped following him. But these 12, these were more of a hardcore type. 
They're going to hang in there, except, of course, for Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Now, what about this number 12? Where does it come from? It was probably in reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus deliberately chose the number, as John Gill and Adam Clark say, and I have no doubt that he deliberately chose 12. If the number 12 is everywhere in the Old Testament, I'm going to read you a list that John Gill gives. The number 12 is either an allusion to the 12 spies that were sent by Moses into the land of Canaan or to the 12 stones in Aaron's best breastplate or to the 12 fountains the Israelites found in the wilderness or to the 12 oxen on which the molten sea stood in Solomon's temple or to the 12 gates in Ezekiel's temple or rather to the 12 patriarchs and the tribes which sprung from them. So you see, there's lots and lots and lots of 12s. I think the simplest answer is to say that Jesus was referring to the 12 apostles and the number 12 was sort of in the architectonic structure of Israel. It's everywhere. And you, and you remember in the book of Revelation also the, the New Jerusalem, 12 of the foundation stones were the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19:28 says this, Jesus said to them, I assure you in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve thrones uh, tribes of Israel. So there you have twelve tribes um, uh, directly linked up with the twelve apostles sitting on glorious thrones. All right, so the twelve are going out to establish the kingdom, and the twelve that number twelve had a lot of significance to it. I mentioned the context here. Let's read that in in directly in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, the last three verses of the previous chapter. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then he sent the workers out. So like he answered his own, answered the apostles' prayer. It's interesting, interesting that when Jesus sent out the 70, which is in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, a different occasion. This is what he says. He told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send that workers into his harvest. The exact same words. And, of course, the application today is we need people going out into the harvest and evangelizing people and bringing them into the kingdom. It's one of the fundamental works of the church. Now, these apostles were sent out to heal every disease, King James has all manner of disease, which means some diseases in every category, every category without distinction, every kind of disease, in other words. It, the word can also mean every single disease exhaustively. I don't think it meant that here. I think it meant that whatever disease was brought to them, they were to cure it. Or it could mean heal every kind of disease, even the bad ones, even the hard ones like leprosy. Whatever it means, though, Jesus had a lot of authority and he gave it to his disciples. Let's go to verse 2. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. I one time read a book on who were the twelve apostles. I've never been so confused in my life. I wish I hadn't read the book. I am going to go through the apostles and tell you most probably with a high degree of certainty who these apostles were. Some of them are very clear. Some of them are kind of fuzzy because the Jews had funny naming conventions and they gave people different names, or the same name, actually, and it's hard to tell who's who. But we'll start out with first Simon. We know old Simon, Simon Peter. Before we do that, though, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the word apostles. This is the first time these disciples are called apostles. Since they're going forth to preach, they are now called sent ones. That's what the word apostle means. It means a sent one. So they're sent out to preach. 
It's necessary to be a disciple before one can be an apostle, as, be an apostle, as Adam Clark points out, and that's really true. And they were already disciples, but now they're apostles. This is the first time the word is used in Matthew. Why was the name given to them? John Gill speculates for the truth of the history so that people will know who were the authorized representatives of Jesus, or maybe to give them honor as the first apostles, or maybe so that people could detect and exclude false apostles. They'd say, what's your name? Zach? Well, Zach is not one of the twelve, so get out of here. I don't know about that. But at any rate, they were called apostles. Now, there are several parallel passages where these apostles are mentioned. Some are mentioned at, when they were recruited, and some were mentioned when they were commissioned to be sent out. Uh, so the lists are not at the same time, but there are a list of the twelve. We have Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. We have Luke 6, 14 through 16. We have Acts 1, 13, as well as here in Matthew. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke. We also have Acts. And John mentioned some of them. He didn't listen to all 12, but he listened to some of them as they were called uh, at the very beginning. So what we need to do is compare these lists and see if we can come out with some commonality so we'll know who we're talking about. Let's start with Simon. Well, he's easy because everybody knows Simon. He's also known as Simeon, by the way, in Acts chapter 15, verse 14. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. At the Jerusalem Council, they called him Simeon. Simeon is pure Hebrew, according to John Gill. A Jerusalem dialect of Hebrew is Simon. And, of course, Jesus called him Peter because upon this rock, Petros means rock in Greek, signifies a stone because of the rock-solid confession he made of faith in Jesus. And also, he's also called Cephas. I think it's the Aramaic translation of stone, if I remember correctly. So we know who he is, of course, and he has a, a large part to play in gospel history. Now, he's mentioned first. And in fact, Matthew uses the word first, first Simon. Well, you can see how the Catholics are going to take that and run with it. See there, he's the He's the leader of the apostles. It nowhere says he was the leader of the apostles. He's just called first. John Gill and Adam Clark say that this is purely arbitrary. Someone had to be listed, so he said first. That's like all these feminists like to say, Priscilla is listed before Aquila, therefore she had primacy over Aquila. No, it just means that somebody's got to be listed first. Not to mention the fact that sometimes Aquila is listed over Priscilla. Does that mean we're supposed to say that Aquila had primacy over Priscilla? No, it just means somebody has to go first. Simon went first. I suspect he went first because he's so well known. He 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 did so much many things in the gospel history, things bad and things good. Andrew's mentioned next because he's brother. You'll notice these guys are mentioned in pairs because they went out in pairs. So Andrew is brother. Andrew owned that house in Capernaum along with Peter where. Peter's wife and mother-in-law lived. Now, we are next comes James and John, the son, and these are James and John, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These are famous because they are called the sons of thunder. With a nickname like that, I think you can remember them pretty good. Why were they called the sons of thunder? Well, actually, let me let me show you where they're called sons of thunder in Mark chapter three, verse seventeen. One of the parallel passages I just mentioned. To James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the name Bornage, that is, sons of thunder. Why were they called sons of thunder? The NIV Study Bible says it was descriptive of their personality. In other words, they sound like they were kind of rough people. John Gill says it it could be because of their loud and sonorous voices, their sweet, their loud, clear voices. John Gill also says it could be because of their zeal for Christ. Luke chapter 9, verse 53-54. This is a famous incident. 
But that some people did not welcome Jesus because he determined to, to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? They just assumed, hey, they're walking with the Messiah. They got power. They really went to their heads, and they were ready to use some power to turn some people into toast, call down some lightning from heaven and fry people like they were on a golf course with a metal golf club. Some people say that they were sons of thunder because of their courage in opposing the enemies of Christ. Well, for whatever reason, we know who they are. James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder. Now, these are brothers, and they're working together as brothers. Adam Clark has an interesting comment, which I disagree with. He said, this is a very rare case, and family compacts in the work of the ministry are dangerous and should be avoided. I don't know why that should be. I don't know why you can't work with a brother. I don't know why he must have had a bad experience somewhere with some nepotism in in his gospel in somebody's gospel ministry go on to verse 3 matthew 10 verse 3 going on with the list of of apostles philip and bartholomew thomas and matthew the tax collector james the son of alphaeus and thaddeus all right well let's start with let's start with the easy ones first thomas that's the famous doubting thomas he's also called didymus one name was greek one was hebrew yeah, both the names thomas and didymus mean twin apparently he was a twin brother but that's not what he's famous for. He's famous because when he saw Jesus, he says, I'm not going to believe you that you've resurrected from the dead. And Jesus said, put your, put your hands in the, in the wound in my side here. Look at, the, look, at, look at me and you'll see, look at my wounds and you'll see that I am the Messiah. And then Thomas believed. It's a shame he did, he's not called Believing Thomas because he actually ended up believing. But, you know, the nickname sticks and we call him Doubting Thomas. And Matthew, the tax collector, is the guy who wrote this gospel here he's the, it's the only place where he call he is called the tax collector the other gospels didn't call him that because they were trying to be nice to him because tax collectors were such evil people matthew seems to not be bothered by the term he called himself that probably to show that look what a cool thing it is that i'm following the messiah a tax collector so he brings out the detail now philip is mentioned in all the four list of apostles that i mentioned it's a greek name he probably got it He's probably a Jew, though, that was just given a Greek name. We don't know much about him. Now, he went out with Bartholomew. He's listed in a pair with Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew is mentioned in all of the list, and he is usually identified with Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Now, why? Well, because, well, let me just read what Jameson Fawcett and Brown say about this. That this person is the same with Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee is justly concluded for the three following reasons. First, because Bartholomew is not so probably an individual's name as a family surname. So this is kind of like his last name. Next, because not only in this list, but in Mark's and Luke's, the list I just told you about, he follows the name of Philip. It says Philip and Bartholomew, Philip and Bartholomew. Well, Philip was the guy that brought Nathanael first to Jesus and John. Remember when Nathanael came, Philip went to Nathanael and Nathanael came to Jesus and Jesus said, I saw you even before you came while you were sitting under the fig tree. Well, he was called Nathanael there. So, and Philip was the one who got Nathanael to come to Jesus and, and Philip and Bartholomew are listed together in these lists in a pair so that's a reasonable conclusion that Nathaniel is the same thing as is the same guy as Bartholomew. So we'll call him Nathaniel Bartholomew. He's also mentioned uh, at the Sea of Galilee in the post-resurrection appearance in John chapter 21. He's called Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. He's associated with six other guys who we know were apostles. So it's the same guy. I'm convinced. Philip, Bartholomew, and Nathaniel. All right, so we've got those taken care of. Now, how about James, the son of Alphaeus? He's another disciple. 
He's mentioned in all the lists. No problem there. His father's name is given to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. He, this is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also called the lesser because of Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. This is talking about looking at the crucifixion. Among them were Mary Magdalene, mother of the, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. This is uh, Mary's the mother of James the Younger is Mary's, the Virgin Mary's sister, so we'll call her Sister Mary. Now this name, Alphaeus, this gets a little complicated here, but Alphaeus is the same name as Cleopas, or Cleophas as John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all say, so I'll take their word for it. So now we know that James is the son of Cleopas. Well, Cleopas is one of the guys that met Jesus on the road to, to Emmaus after the resurrection before the ascension. Luke chapter 24, verse 18, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? And then we go by to the crucifixion where we just mentioned Mary, the mother of James the Younger. We have John 19, verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So in Mark, we have Mary is the mother of James the Less, James the Younger, and here we have Mary is the wife of Clopas, so, and Clopas is the same thing as Alphaeus. So Mary is the wife of Alphaeus in John, and in Mark she's the mother of James the Less, and in the disciples list it's James the son of Alphaeus. James, so that's James the Less. So that, I think that narrows that down pretty good. So what this means is that James, the son of Alphaeus, who we don't hear too much about, he was Jesus' first cousin. I'm more nepotism than the original disciples. Jesus started out with brothers and and his first cousin. Now, now we have a guy named Thaddeus that's mentioned. Now, apparently this is the same guy as Jude, the son of James, who wrote the book of Jude. Now, to identify him with Jude, we have John Gill doing that, and also my NIV study Bible, citing Luke 6.16 and Acts 1.13, those other two lists where James, the son of Jude, is listed. Now, He's not listed here in Matthew, but he's listed in those other thing, in those other passages. So we're going to assume that Thaddeus is Jude, the son of James. Let's let's look at these other uh, lists. Luke six sixteen, Judas, the son of James. Acts one thirteen, Judas, the son of James. John fourteen twenty two, Judas, not Iscariot. So here we have Jude, who is distinguished from Iscariot, and here in the list in Matthew is Judas, who is, well, actually, you don't have Judas, we have Thaddeus. So apparently he had a double name. So Thaddeus was the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, according to some. The root of his name means to praise or give thanks. Well, I don't know if he's the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, but, and I don't know how they know that he, how the scholars know that he wrote the book of Jude. And notice that John Gill and the NIV Study Bible say apparently he's the same guy as Jude. They don't know for sure. But we're going to, just for the sake of clarity, uh, sake of simplicity, we're going to assume that's the apostle that wrote the book of Jude. All right, so let's go on now to verse 4 in Matthew 10. Simon the Zealot, we're still listing apostles here. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Also means, in addition to being an apostle, Judas Iscariot also was the betrayer of Jesus. We all we know all about Judas Iscariot. We don't need to talk about him too much. Who is this Simon the Zealot? Well, this was a description of Simon's religious zeal because zealots, the zealot party back in that time, were religious zealots. They were a member of a Jewish revolutionary party who were violently opposed to Roman rule. 
little inform, a little piece of information for those who are reading the King James Version. The King James Version calls him a Canaanite. He wasn't a Canaanite. He was Jewish. His, the name comes the name Canaanite that the King James used came from the Hebrew for Kanaim, Kanaim, which means zealot, not Canaanite, zealot. So that's confusing. Now he was he was called the zealot to distinguish him from Simon Peter. Now, what about these zealots? They would kill anyone immediately without trial if they were caught in adultery and blasphemy and idolatry and theft. Ooh, they were religious people, all right. And they would kill people without the benefit of due process of law. They were subject to no court. They were responsible for unspeakable murders and evil during the siege of Jerusalem and the Jewish war. If you read Josephus on the Jewish war, the zealots show up an awful lot, and they're doing a lot of stupid things. If I remember one dumb thing they did is they burnt all the grain supply in the city which led to mass starvations and famine inside the city and eventually caused the city to collapse because of their stupidity, and they were killing everybody in sight. What a background Simon the Zealot came from in order to follow the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Some say he was Jesus' brother. I don't believe this. Matthew 13, verse 55. Matthew mentions uh, a few of the half-brothers of Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Well, we know his brother James became the, one of the leading apostles at the church at Jerusalem. James the Just, he was called. He's a famous guy. These other guys are unknown, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And some people speculate that Jesus' half-brother was Simon the Zealot. It's just a speculation. Some people also speculate that Judas, this Jude, the son of James, was also Jesus' brother. So that the guy who wrote the book of Jude was Jesus' brother. I don't know. I, don't, I think that's just carrying speculation too far, and I won't do it. This surname of Iscariot for Judas, no one really knows where this name comes from. There are lots of speculations. The NIV Study Bible says it probably means the man from Kerioth, Iscariot, the man from Kerioth, which is referring to Kerioth Hezron, which is 12 miles south of Hebron, a little town down there. Who knows? Doesn't matter. He's famous not for, because of where he's from, but because of what he did. His surname Iscariot is used to distinguish that Judah from the author that Jude or that Judas from the author of the New Testament letter of Jude. Now notice that the apostles how close they were and they had somebody that turned them over to the Jewish authorities to kill Jesus. What a horrible betrayer betrayal. This is a comforting to know for believers who've been betrayed by close workers that it happened to the original band of twelve. Could happen to anybody. It's a terrible thing to be betrayed. Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road leading to other nations and don't enter any Samaritan town. Why? The gospel was to preach to Jews first. Why was that? Because Jews, so that Jews would have no excuse should they reject the gospel. They, they wouldn't be able to say, hey, you went to the Gentiles first and the Gentiles are dogs and the gospel's not meant for Gentiles. So what kind of a Messiah are you? No, Jesus didn't want that. He wanted it to be very clear. I've came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm your Messiah and you rejected me. John Gill puts it this way, quote, to take off all excuse from them and that their obstinacy and perverseness in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah might manifestly appear. Not going to be sent any mixed messages by going to the Gentiles first. The Jews would likely stumble if the Gentiles were included in the appeal because of their inordinate prejudice against Gentiles. Remember, they called Gentiles wild dogs. Now, of course, this restriction was taken off after the resurrections because the gospel after the resurrection was to go to all nations. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 21, verse 43 Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, away from you uh, Pharisees and, and uh, 
rabbis and given to a nation producing its fruit. And that nation, of course, is the Gospels. He also said, don't go into Samaria. Don't enter any Samaritan town. Well, who were the Samaritans? They were, of course, in the area right north of Jerusalem. They were a mixed blood group, mixed race group. They were Israelites who were left behind after the Assyrian invasion of 722 B.C., the famous destruction of the ten northern tribes. And the Assyrians had this policy. They would, in order to keep rebellions away, they would take part of the population away and deport them, and then they would bring in populations from other areas of the Assyrian Empire and put them in uh, to the conquered nation in order to replace the natives who were taken out. So you had a mixed bunch of Jews and pagans from all over the Assyrian uh, Empire. There was bitter hostility between the Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day, as I'm sure you know. Here's a famous quote from the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. How is it that you, Jesus, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And again, if Jesus sent his apostles out to go to the Samaritans first, there would be all kinds of problems. The the Jews would say, see there, you're not the Messiah. You're going out and associating with these dogs, these Samaritan dogs. But again, those two restrictions, the Gentile nations and the Samaritans, those restrictions are taken off in after the resurrection, after the falling of, of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's Samaria, and the ends of the earth is the Gentiles. So the Samaritans and the Gentiles are going to get the gospel at the proper time. But now in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus says, Instead, instead of going to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is interesting that the Jews were called lost sheep. That doesn't speak too well of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were their shepherds. <laughs> the shepherds had lost their sheep. Matthew 15:24. Jesus is speaking to the Syrophoenician woman. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel as she begged for healing. I think it was her daughter, but her possessed daughter. She says, looking for crumbs from the table. She says, yes, I'm a Gentile dog, but dogs eat crumbs from the table. So Jesus there referred to the lost sheep. Now, there's lots of scriptures talking about shepherd, Jews as sheep, lost sheep. Isaiah 53, 6, we all went astray like sheep. We have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. First Peter 2.25, For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, My people are lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, guiding them the wrong way in the mountains. They have wandered from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. It's a good description of the Israelites that Jesus was ministering to. Jeremiah 50, verse 17, Israel is a stray lamb chased by lions. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria, 722 B.C. The last one who crushed his bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 587-86 B.C. Ezekiel 34, verses 2 through 6, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat. Wear the wool and butcher the flattened, fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost, and said you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. That's where, they, of course, they offered idols. They were scattered 
offered sacrifices to idols. They were scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. That's a great description of lost sheep. It describes the people that Jesus was dealing with. He had a lot to deal with. Jesus continues in verse 7 of Matthew 10, As you go, announce this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. These are the same words that John the Baptist used when he started his ministry. In Matthew 3, verse 2, we read, And saying, Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. Well, exactly when was near? Well, it's not the kingdom of glory in the next world. That wasn't near. It means the gospel age, which was about to begin. Now, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is Matthew's phrase. People speculate that because Matthew was Jewish and he didn't want to use the name of God directly so much because the Jews were sensitive about that, that he euphemized it to heaven. But it occurs 33 times in the gospels, the kingdom of God only four times. But they mean the same thing. This is important if you're dealing with dispensationalists, some, some of the old ones who like to say that they're two different, two different things. No, they're not. They're the same thing. A kingdom is where the rule of God is, and where is it, is it is accepted by its inhabitants, its citizens. For example, Jesus rules over the church on the earth, living. He, live, he rules over the departed saints. He rules over angels, all of that. Wherever Jesus rules, the kingdom of heaven is here. Of course, here it has a more narrow focus than that. It means the kingdom of God here on earth because that's what Jesus was getting ready to set up. Matthew 10, verse 8, he tells the apostles, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, drive out demons you have received free of charge, give free of charge. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. I like that, free of charge, give free of charge. Now, raise the dead might not be in there. There's some textual problems here. Many manuscripts omit the phrase, as Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. The King James puts it in italics. Uh, and other passages where the disciples are sent out before the resurrections don't have the phrase. For example, in Luke 9, 6, and Luke 10, verses 19 through 20, and Matthew 10, 1, it mentions driving out unclean spirits and healing diseases, but nothing about raising from the dead. So maybe that not, might not be there. It would, but if it was there, it would, wouldn't bother me any, but it might not be there. But healing the sick, cleansing those with skin diseases, now that those were incurable diseases. Leprosy was, nobody could cure leprosy, and the apostles were given authority to do that. So they had a lot of, of authority here. Now, what does it mean? You have received free of charge, give free of charge. Jesus was a rabbi, but he didn't charge for his teaching. The rabbis back then, it was a, it was a practice. You teach, you, you get paid. Jesus accepted nothing, and Jesus... Uh, taught his disciples freely, and he says, look, you, you learn from me free, you teach free, for free. You don't charge anything. Now, what could be clearer than that, and how should we apply that today? How many Christians today charge for their ministry or come close to charging for their ministry? The church has been scandalized by financial scandals over and over and over again. If you want people to immediately reject your message, just charge them for what you're trying to give them. You better figure out how to finance it Finance giving the message out without charging the people that you preach to. Paul never did it, not once. Did he ever accept an offering from a church he was ministering to? That's easy to show. He did, he did take uh, voluntary donations from churches that he wasn't ministering to, but never those that he was ministering to. So Jesus must have been aware of the awful temptation to make money off the gospel. As I said, the rabbis were doing it. Now, we got to be careful here. This does not mean that you can't take donations. That's not the same thing as charging charging uh, to for people to hear your gospel like say come into this meeting hall here and you and there's a, a charge at the door or something like that or you pay me a salary and i give you a lecture that's that's charging but if somebody wants to voluntarily give you give them money well they had, they had to live off of voluntary donations they were poor they were poor fishermen they had no money and notice that even though they were poor they were still told by jesus give free of charge jesus was 
poor. And yet he didn't charge for his teaching either. People gave them money. I think in one place in the Gospels it talks about women who traveled around with them and gave of their substance, of their wealth, to support these apostles and to support Jesus. Now, I will say this, that the word you have received freely, freely give freely, could mean you have received abundantly without restraint, so therefore give abundantly without restraint. It might not apply to money at all. I don't think so, but I do mention that as a possibility. Go on to verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 10. Jesus tells his 12 apostles, Don't take along gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a walking stick, for the worker is worthy of his food. In other words, travel light and live off the land. Now, why did he tell them that? Don't take all these things. Well, it was burdensome to travel to carry all that stuff. It was easier to get support along on the way, on the journey. They weren't going to be gone long, as Adam, as John Gill points out. This also had another effect. It taught them to live on divine providence. And how many times have you heard stories of missionaries or workers who live on voluntary donations without asking for money? Hudson Taylor is the greatest example of this. He never asked for money, and his missionaries to this day. I ran into one in, uh, where was that? It was in Liaoning Province in China. And I said, how do you finance it? Because I'm interested in this kind of stuff. And he wouldn't talk to me. I, I, I can't talk about it. I can't talk. And I kept pushing him, and he finally said, if you promise me not to tell anybody, well, of course, here I am telling you, but I'm not going to give his name. I will say this, though. Uh, he, uh, they would not raise money by asking for it. They would take donations, of course. That takes faith. Uh, who was the guy, gosh, I can't remember his name, that did the orphanage in, in Bristol, England? George Mueller. George Mueller, he didn't take any money. And financing an orphanage, that's doggone expensive. I, sh- I shouldn't say he didn't take any money. He didn't raise money. Freely was given, freely gave. And I would suggest that for any Christian today. You want to do something with the gospel, figure out how to finance it by faith without charging people for it because then nobody can point their finger at you and ruin your reputation or bring shame and reproach on the gospel in any way, not even close. Now, we have a problem here. Well, first of all, well, I've already mentioned that the, they were traveling light, so they didn't take the traveling bag to carry stuff in or an extra shirt, just wear one shirt, one pair of sandals. But now it's a walking stick. Take one walking stick. We have a problem of reconciliation, a problem of harmony here, because in Mark chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus, he, Jesus, instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, no well, let me read that again. He instructed them in Mark, this is in Mark chapter 6, verse 8. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick. No bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. In other words, Mark allowed a walking stick, it sounds like, and Matthew did not. How do we reconcile this? Well, the easiest way is the extra modify shirt, sandals, and walking stick. Don't take an extra shirt. Don't take extra sandals. Don't take an extra walking stick. You're allowed one. Why would you take two walking sticks? Well, because you could use one for walking and one for defense. Don't worry about defense. Just uh, take one walking stick. That's it. Travel light. Now, another way to reconcile this, according to Adam Clark, is by by looking at manuscript variations. Because, well, let me just quote you what Adam Clark says. Rabdon, a staff, is in the margin, but instead of Rabdon staff, which is the common reading, all the following manuscripts, and he lists a bunch of them, they have Rabdus, which is plural, accusative plural. So then what it would say is don't take shirt, sandals, or walking sticks, plural, 
In other words, you need one walking stick for walking. To, uh, why would you need two walking sticks? You wouldn't. The second walking stick would be for defense. Okay, well, that's how we are. The Bible does not have contradictions in it, liberals. Now, he said, uh, he said, the worker is worthy of his food, which means that, hey, yeah, he, you could take donations of food. In other words, don't carry it with you, but accept hospitality to give you food. Now, let me make this point again. How does this idea of taking food, how does this fit with Paul's practice of never taking money from those he ministered to? Because receiving donations is not the same thing as receiving hospitality. That's point number one. Receiving somebody's shelter or, or meal is not taking monetary donations. But also, point number two, it's not a salary. It's not a, a fee. You're not charging somebody. You, hospitality has nothing to do with charging. It's just accepting something that somebody gave you, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, we should point out, of course, that accepting food as donations and hospitality has nothing to do with getting filthy rich. Benny Hinn, are you listening? No. Kenneth Copeland, are you listening? It has nothing to do with that. Here's some scriptures about receiving ministers of the gospel, receiving donations, material donations. Romans 15, verse 27, second part of the verse. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, in the Jews' spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs. 1 Corinthians 9.11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? Paul had no problem with reaping material benefits from the Corinthians, but he wasn't there in Corinth and he was going to reap those material benefits. And it wasn't a salary. He wasn't on a paid, he wasn't a hired hand. He just, it was okay to receive donations. Galatians 6, 6, the one who taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. There's the obligation to give to a teacher. Give, share, not pay a salary to or not pay a fee to, a charge, a set charge. 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Ah, now we can say, see there, the worker is worthy of his wages. Therefore, he can get a salary. This is speaking metaphorically. An ox does not receive wages when he's treading out the grain. He's not paid a salary. It's just talking about material benefit, not a particular type of of wages. And besides, the last part, the work is worthy of his wages, is referring to these disciples who were sent out receiving hospitality, and Jesus, and they never received any kind of salary from the people that were showing them hospitality. So it's obvious that the work is worthy of his wages is metaphorical. It's not meant to be taken literally. This bag that they were supposed to carry, according to Clark, is a bag that they carried around their necks and put food in. When we read it, I think, I tend to think of it as a traveling bag, you know, to carry clothes and such in, but I don't know. Clark says it's food, not clothes. Why would they might want to carry an extra shirt? Because an extra tunic was helpful at night to protect against the cold night air. Well, the disciples weren't to sleep in the open. They were to trust in God to provide their lodging every night, as the NIV Study Bible says. Don't sleep in the open. You don't need a tunic. All right, let's go to verse 11 of Matthew 10. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Who would be worthy? Well, here's some options. It could be a God-fearing person. It could be a person worthy of receiving Christ. But the problem is, is how do you know that before you go in? It could be a person liberal with money and food and who was hospitable. That makes sense. But at any rate, if they went to a person who had a bad reputation in whatever area, in, in whatever aspect then that's going to hurt their reputation too, and that would hurt the message. So stay with people with good reputations. That's a good lesson for us to take today. If you're working for the gospel, don't hang around with people 
who don't have a good reputation in the community. Why were, supposed to, why were they supposed to stay there in, in a house before they left? Well, here's some options as to why. It would look like they were difficult to please and ungrateful if they wandered from house to house. Well, I don't like the food here. Let's go stay somewhere else. Might br- this might bring reproach upon the first host as if they had left because they were ill-used. And not only that, it would waste time going from house to house, and time was of the essence, of course. Okay, Matthew chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Jesus continues, Greet a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be upon it, be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. This is some Jewish idioms here, this peace business. This was the peace. Peace to this household was the usual form of Jewish greeting. Now, for the peace to return to you is just the Jewish way of saying, look, all the happiness and peace that I wish for you, uh, we're taking it back because we're out of here. We're leaving. You didn't treat us well, and so we're we're going. We're leaving. That's all it's saying. It's not like they're calling now curses upon the, <laughs> the, the unhospitable, unworthy host. Here's the way John Gill puts it. The happiness wished for shall not come upon them, and the prayers and good wishes of the apostles shall be void and of none effect with respect to that family. And the idea is, of course, look, let your peace return so that you can go find another house that you can put your peace on. Now, peace, shalom, had a very extensive meaning among the Jews. It, it comprehended all blessings, spiritual and temporal. It was a big deal. Peace, in, you know, in English doesn't sound so momentous, but shalom in Hebrew did. Matthew 10, verse 14, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, there's a couple options of what this little symbol what the symbolism of this is one is to show that they were not interested in money they wouldn't even carry the dust away from the house we're not interested in your money we're gone that's john gill's speculation i don't believe that i believe this it's a symbolic act of rejection it was practiced by the pharisees and adapted to the disciples use this is according to the niv study bible when pharisees left an unclean gentile area they would shake the dust off their feet to symbolize the fact that they weren't going to carry any uncleanness with them as they left the area. And here it was meant as an act of solemn warning when the disciples shook the dust off their feet. They said, look, you rejected God's message, and we're showing you that you've rejected God's message, and you're out of, and we're out of here. You know, no peace going to be on your house because you rejected God's message. The Jews consider themselves defiled by the dust of a heathen country, so that's why they would shake off the, the, the dust to show that they weren't going to defile anymore. And the disciples were saying, basically, we're not going to be defiled by your unbelief. Just to give you a feel for this shaking off the dust thing, it's everywhere in the Gospels, Luke 9, 5. If they do not welcome you when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet. That's probably a parallel. Acts 13, verse 51. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. This is on the first journey. The disciples did that. Mark chapter 6 verse 11. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. I think that's also a parallel too. Luke chapter 10 verse 11. We are wiping off against you even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. that's That's not a parallel. I think I forgot the Except context, but the idea here is that uh, shaking the dust off is a serious, serious matter. And in fact, to show that, we go to verse 15 in Matthew 10. I assure you, Jesus continues, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, the town that rejected the gospel and had the and had its dust shaken off the feet of the apostles. That town would be better off getting judged and thrown into hell like Sodom and Gomorrah would. Ooh, that's serious. 
serious business. He's, Jesus is quite confident. He says, I assure you, he knows what judgment is going to happen to those who reject him. And he's the Messiah. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah have become poster child, children for evil. The day of judgment, what day of judgment is probably the great white throne judgment at the end of the world, as Adam Clark says. Adam Clark suggests also it could be the destruction of the Jewish state by the Romans in 8070. I don't see that because what did Sodom and Gomorrah have to do with that? Not much. He, he, Clark also suggests that it could be the day the particular rejecting town is destroyed. The day of judgment for that particular town, of course, which would be at random times for, for random cities. I don't know. It means they're going to hell for what they're doing when rejecting the gospel. All right, I need to stop here. We'll take it up next time. Verse 16, we'll continue on with the commissioning of the 12 apostles. I hope you enjoyed this audio.